Imagine that you and I take a boat trip down a river in the jungle. And now our guide on this boat trip Wait for it. Wait for it. Here, there it is. Your guide on this boat trip brings us to a small village at a bend in the river. And there we sit around the campfire, sharing a meal with some of the villagers. But while we do this, out of the corner of your eye, you see a large alligator stealthily scamper up and sink his razor-sharp teeth into a young man sitting at the edge of the circle. The alligator then proceeds to drag this young man down the bank back into the river, gone. A moment later, another amphibious predator an alligator even larger than the first waddles up. He opens his huge jaws and completely consumes a young girl. And then, over the course of 15 minutes or so, countless more alligators emerge from the river to claim their prey. Some of the villagers narrowly escape the snapping jaws, while others are left with lifelong injury, and some become dead meat. And there we sit around the campfire, and we are shocked, to say the least. But we're even more shocked at the response of the villagers, because in the chaos and in the mayhem of the moment, they don't move a muscle. They don't respond or react at all. Even as the alligator splashes back into the river, they continue eating their meal with apparent indifference. But a closer glance at these individuals who are continuing their meal with apparent indifference, it reveals something very striking. A woman to your left is missing a leg. A man to my right is missing an arm. A man in the center of the circle is missing both legs. Our curiosity, our, our alarm and bewilderment is peaked and we shout out, what in the world is going on here? And the villagers, they all reply in unison, we don't talk about alligators. What? We turn to our guide and he explains to us that this is something that happens quite regularly to these villagers. The alligators come up, attack and hurt and eat these villagers. But the villagers have decided that it's best not to acknowledge the alligators. We don't talk about alligators. 
You're so blown away by this. You're like, well, this makes no sense. Well, why don't you like arm yourselves or set traps for the alligators or even set a watchman, a sentry, to, to tell you when an alligator is coming near? We don't talk about alligators. Our guide turns to us and explains in hushed tones, well, you know, they really could talk about alligators. They really could, but they've decided not to talk about alligators because people might get offended. People might get scared. People wouldn't know what to do. So they've decided just to pretend like the alligators don't exist. We don't talk about alligators. Sex is an alligator. And when it comes to the church, we don't talk about alligators. We don't talk about sex. Even though it's killing those around us and maiming others, leaving them with lifelong injuries, we don't talk about alligators. And so as a result, the alligators, they just keep on coming and chewing us up. But today... We're going to talk about alligators. We're going to have a good old sex talk. But before we do, I invite you to stand, if you're able to stand, as we read from our memory verse for this sermon series, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to talk about sex and get really awkward and uncomfortable. But God, we know that in this way, when we talk about these things, when we dive into these subjects that are rather weird to talk about, Lord, you do something amazing. So our hearts are open, our minds are open, and we ask for you to speak to us loudly today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So today we continue our summer sermon series, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount refers to three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, it's not typically a sermon in the way that we often think of sermons, something that's preached from a pulpit in the middle of a worship service. Instead, it's more like a collection of teachings of Jesus regarding discipleship, what it means to be a devoted disciple of Jesus. It means to be faithfully forgiving, to be radically righteous, to be uncharacteristically unstoppable, and of course, to be a pure peacemaker. But in order to be a devoted disciple of Jesus, we must talk about alligators. And so we're going to begin, if you would skip down in your Bibles with me, to Matthew 5, verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Don't commit adultery. So Jesus begins his sex talk by addressing and reaffirming the Old Testament law. You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. 
Now, this comes straight from the Ten Commandments, from Exodus 20, 14, and Deuteronomy 5, 18. And the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, the Hebrew construction here sounds like this. Lo tineap. Lo tineap. It begins with that first word, lo, which is a negative command of permanent prohibition. You shall never, ever, 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 ever even think about doing what? Tineap. Committing adultery. What does that mean? means don't hook up with someone else's boo. <laughs> Stay true to your boo. And what Jesus does here is he takes this simple command, don't commit adultery, and he provides a new radical interpretation. Verses 27 and 28 together read, You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Well, I've got questions, questions that have to do with this too, to be precise. The first is, what does it mean to look at a woman lustfully? And then secondly, why is this only directed toward the man? Come on. Well, let's take a look at this first question. What does it mean to look at a woman lustfully? Two words, elevator eyes. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where your eyes begin at the basement and they go all the way to the top floor and they stop at like every single floor along the way. No one's ever done that before? You don't know what I'm talking about. Well, it's not such a big issue with the visual examination of God's beauty that he has created. The issue is with what's going on in the mind. Because ladies, guys are not thinking about how cute that blouse looks with those shoes. And I can guarantee you that no guy is wondering where you bought those pants and if they're still on sale. <laughs> they're not. To look at a woman lustfully is to look at her with a lot more gears going. Now, the Greek word that is used to describe this lustful looking in this passage is epithumeo, a sexual longing, a burning desire, a hunger and thirst that is never satisfied dangerously destructive. You know, alligators are dangerously destructive. There's a television show on the History Channel that documents the day-to-day -day activities of alligator hunters in the swamps and bayous of southern Louisiana. It's called Swamp People. And on Swamp People, you'll see Big Troy Landry cruising through the glassy marshes in his motorboat, and he'll turn to the camera and say something like, Oh, boy, today we're going to get out together. We're going down into an alligator. And fortunately, there are subtitles for translation because I have no idea what he just said. And he powers through the swamp, and he heads to a trap that he set the night before. 
It's like this thin piece of rope that is tied to a tree. And he pulls up to the tree and he said, oh, boy, we got a tree shaker here. And he proceeds to put his hands around the rope, like in the water. And this rope is attached to a not-so-happy alligator. And he then pulls up on the rope. And then suddenly, this furious alligator breaches. And there's splashing water all over, sharp teeth slamming. And then the next few moments are filled with a lot of yelling and a lot of cussing as Troy Landry is screaming at his son, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. And then pow, alligator down. He lifts it up. Oh, we got a big old alligator here. And he drops him into the aluminum boat. And then they move on to the next kill, lusting after the next and then the next, and then the next, hoping for a bigger alligator, then lusting after the next, and the next, and the next. And what's crazy is all day long, they're, they're, they're taking these alligators out of the swamp. They're dead now, and now these rotting corpses are in the boat. And it's gotta be hot. The flies gotta be swarming around. And then you take into consideration the humidity. It must be like alligator soup here in this aluminum boat. That's what a man's brain is like after a long day of lusting after women. Where we're lusting after women all day Mental snapshots of sexualized fantasy. It makes a man's brain feel like alligator soup. Let's go to our next question. Why only the man? Like, seriously. Jesus, he says this in verse 28. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. I mean, come on, Jesus, why you got to harp on the guys? Like, women don't lust after men? Come on, men are sexy beasts by nature. Back hair, ear hair, nose hair, toe hair. It's true. Do women lust after men, too? I was shocked, and so was the rest of my class. I was at Fuller Theological Seminary in a Christian ethics course, and during this week, we were studying sexual ethics, and my professor, she held up a little book. It looked like a kid's book with its size and binding, and there was a gasp that went all throughout the classroom as we were able to read what the title said. It said, Porn for Women. And as she opened the front cover, I thought, dear God. (laughs) Because there on the front page was a man sitting on a bed. And in one arm, he held a baby. And then with the other hand, he was folding laundry. (laughs) The caption reads, no, you relax. For a while, I've figured out how to fold everything 
one-handed. And then it gets better. Page two pictures a man with rubber gloves and cleaning supplies. He says, I like to get to these things before I have to be asked. And one more for good measure, a man sitting in a minivan. Oh, look, the NFL playoffs are today. I bet we'll have no trouble parking at the crafts fair. <laughs> Said no man ever. <laughs> well, as comical as this might be, when we actually take a look at the real, actual statistics, they're very alarming. According to a study done by the New York Times in 2015, between one and three women, excuse me, one out of three women, access pornography at least once a week. At least once a week. So it's not just a, a problem for men, but it's also a problem for women. So we realize that why then is Jesus only talking to the guys? Well, let's take a look again at verse 28. He says, But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Why is this only directed toward the man? Well, we must first realize that Jesus is communicating in a patriarchal society, in a setting that is very male-dominated, in which women were often viewed, unfortunately, as possessions, and they were vulnerable to abuse through male rights of divorce. I don't think that Jesus is just speaking to the men. I think he's actually speaking to both because what's happening here is actually very remarkable. In Jesus' day and age, what we see happening is women, women who are often charged with things, especially with adultery. I mean, you remember the story, right, in John chapter 8, that famous story of the man caught in adultery, right? He was caught red-handed, Netflix and chilling with someone else's boo. And then they drag him out before all the townspeople, and they're ready to stone this man to death. Remember that man caught in adultery? No, you don't, because it's not in the Bible. It's the woman who is caught in adultery. And where's the man? Probably Netflix and chilling with someone else's boo. On to the next and on to the next. What Jesus does here is actually extremely remarkable. If the societal norm, if the common practice in this day and age of Jesus was to harp on women for even a hint of promiscuity, then what Jesus does here by addressing the men is absolutely countercultural. Countercultural. He moves from an external action, adultery, to an internal behavior, lust. He shows that this objectifying, this making this person out to be an object for your sexual desire and gratification, essentially like a, a sex doll, is clearly an act of being unfaithful to your own spouse or spouse-to-be or to someone else's spouse or spouse-to-be. So then what do we do? If this is a struggle for both men and women, what do we do about it? Well, I've got three simple things that are very practical, rather easy to incorporate into your life. 
The first is just to verbalize a simple phrase. I will not accept that thought. I will not accept that thought. You know, there's a lot of crazy stuff that pops into our minds. And sometimes we can't control that. But what we can control is our next action, what we do with that thought. And I think for me, what helps is getting it out from internal to external. When I say I will not accept that thought, I realize just how crazy it sounds when I speak that out. And then it dissipates. It's gone because it was ridiculous in the first place. Or secondly, what I can do, I always talk to the guys about this, is look at my shoes. You know, you see that person, they walk in through the door and they look smoking pretty. And you're about ready to begin that whole elevator eyes routine. And then you realize, whoa, dude, look at my shoes. These are amazing. I mean, I wear them every day, but they're black and rubbery. They've got laces. And then before you know it, the situation has dissipated. Maybe the person has walked on by, or maybe you realize also, what am I doing? Now, the third thing is actually really practical and really easy, and it's probably the most effective. It's just to pray for people. You see that person walking in. You realize they might be going through something, and maybe I can pray for them instead of lusting after them. Because I think it's rather impossible to be lusting after someone and praying for them at the same time. If you don't like these options, you can just do what Jesus says in verse 29. And if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, the Greek is scandalizo, which means like fall into some sort of scandal, tear it out. Exireo is the Greek. It means to completely remove it. That is to like gouge it out with like an ice cream scoop or something and then throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, the Greek word we see translated here as hell is Gehenna. And I want to talk a little bit about Gehenna and hell. Gehenna can refer to the spiritual place of eternal separation from God, the place we call hell. But in Jesus' day, Gehenna was also a trash dump and a place for burying criminals located outside the city walls of Jerusalem. So the physical place of defilement in Jesus' day became, formed a very excellent analogy for the spiritual place we call hell. But whether you interpret Gehenna as a spiritual place or a physical place or in some way both, in this passage, one thing is clear. It's a place of worthlessness a place of absolute worthlessness. And it's better to lose an eyeball than for our whole lives to be consumed with worthlessness. Now, Jesus here is using what's called hyperbolic language. He's speaking in hyperbole, using an extreme exaggeration, but he's serious. He's serious, not about self-mutilation and us cutting out our eyeballs and throwing them away, but he's serious about making yourself blind to whatever enables you to sin. Making yourself blind to whatever enables you 
to sin. Well, verse 30 continues here with another option. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body go into hell. During the Gaelic Wars of 58 to 50 B.C., when Julius Caesar and the Roman Empire were waging war against the Gaelic tribes of modern-day France and Belgium and Germany, Julius Caesar had a protocol to use upon captured warriors. He would cut off their thumbs. By cutting off their thumbs, when they were released and allowed to go free and return to their homelands, they would serve as a continual reminder not to mess with Rome. But also, they could never wield a sword again. Whether the author of Matthew or Jesus had access to this knowledge is debatable, but what Jesus does is even more extreme. Not just cut off these little thumbs, but cut off your entire right hand. And you know, your right hand in this day and age is your good hand. Your left hand is your Charmin hand. You know what I'm talking about, right? You don't shake people with your left hand. They didn't have nice, fluffy, soft toilet paper back then. You had your left hand. So if you had your right hand cut off, this is the hand you do for that, use for that, and for eating. It's kind of gross and unsanitary. So we'll continue with the message now to get that idea out of your mind. But it's better to lose your right hand than for your entire body to be consumed with worthlessness. Now Jesus, again, is speaking in hyperbolic language, using an extreme exaggeration. But he's serious. He's not serious about us mutilating ourselves, cutting off our hands in a literal, physical way. But he's serious about us making cripple that which enables us to sin. Now, this is really harsh, it seems. This teaching of Jesus here on the Sermon on the Mount seems rather harsh, but what Jesus is doing is he is instituting a new system of dignity and purity and honor among his disciples. This is how we are to behave. This is how we are to operate. In place of a lust that consumes with worthlessness, we need a love that honors. Sex is good, created by God, and it's good in a godly context. But lust is worthless. Lust robs men and women of the honor they deserve. Lust robs God of the honor that he deserves. I think it comes down to a very simple question. That question is, what do I want most? What do I want most? Do I want God or do I want something less? Because if I want God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, with all my hopes and dreams and desires and plans, if I want God with everything that makes me me, there's no room for lust. 
and all of this temptation and the struggle, it's easily outmatched and overcome and overwhelmed by wanting God more. It is my hope and it is my prayer that we would be the kind of men and women whose love makes men and women not less true, but truer to their own spouses or spouse-to-be or someone else's spouse or spouse-to-be. It is my hope that we would become the men and women that God has created us to be, that we would be truer to God and encourage and be an example for other people so that they could be truer to God in place of a lust that is worthless, that just breeds this worthlessness, we have the opportunity to be overwhelmed and overcome by a life of great worth and value and peace and comfort and wholeness and healing. And that's what I want. That's what I want. And it becomes apparent and real when I realize that I want God more than anything because I find who I am in God. There is true fulfillment in God. There's not fulfillment in all of these other things that I'm chasing after, lusting after this and that and this and that. But no, when it comes to my relationship with God, when I want God more than anything in my life, I find fulfillment, even in the smallest things. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have called us out of the darkness and into your glorious light. And these words, they may feel abrasive and countercultural, but Lord, help us to embrace them. And as we embrace them, help us to understand that we need to live changed lives, that we have been called to be transformed, not to conform, but be transformed. And this may hurt, and this may be hard, and be very challenging and uncomfortable to talk about. But God, you have not called us to be comfortable. You've called us to be world changers. So help us change our hearts and minds to wash them, to purify them. And it comes from a relationship with you. So I pray, Lord, if someone in here today wants to experience you for the very first time, they would pray, Father, I believe that you sent Jesus, your one and only son, to die on a cross for my sin, for my shame, for my guilt, for my lust, for all the things that I have done wrong and ever will do wrong. I believe that you died on the cross and you rose again. And I ask for you to forgive me. Come into my life and show me the way to live that I may follow you all the days of my life. We pray these things in the name that never fails, in the name of Jesus. Amen.